the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to talk with Paul Angoni. He's the author of 101 Questions You Need to Ask in Your 20s and, quite frankly, Your 30s as well. He'll be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour. Also, we'll uh, bring you up to date on the effort to stop state funding of abortion. In our final segment, we'll let you know where that stands and what you can do to help. So that's uh, pretty exciting. Well, of course, it's uh, 4.08 here in the Portland metro area. It's 7 a.m. in Singapore, where there's the much-anticipated meeting between President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is uh, about to begin. New details have been revealed as officials have made their final preparations for this historic meeting. Of course, it's Tuesday morning there now. Also developing, Trump slammed Canada and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau over the trade in new series of tweets, escalating a G7 war of words with the NATO allies. And House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunez, he set a Tuesday deadline for the Justice Department to hand over documents on the FBI's alleged informant investigating ties between Russia and the Trump's 26th presidential campaign. I'm not sure what happens uh, Tuesday after this deadline, what uh, power he has, but nonetheless, he set the deadline. Robert De Niro uh, launched an expletive-laced tirade at the uh, uh, president at the Tony Awards as the band's visit wins 10 trophies, including Best Musical, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child took Best Play honors on that occasion as well. Vulgarity apparently uh, rules the day. Well, President Trump and North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un are planning to meet uh, one-on-one today. Um, Tuesday, their time in a historic summit there in Singapore. A U.S. official who was not authorized to speak but was familiar with the summit plans said that it's set to the president is set to meet with Kim at the beginning of the summit. They will be joined only by translators will spend a couple of hours before admitting their close advisors to that meeting. Both leaders will be joined later by their closest aides. Uh, President Trump will be joined by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton. Kim Yo-yong, the sister of the North Korean leader who was uh, launched uh, as into a diplomatic offensive uh, during the Winter Olympics in South Korea earlier this year will also be present in Singapore. President Trump uh, expressed optimism about his meeting with Kim as uh, he met with Singapore's prime minister on Monday uh, with last minute preparations for the historic summit taking place uh, shortly. During his working lunch with Singapore Prime Minister Lee uh, Lung, the president uh, said he thinks uh, things can work out very nicely with North Korea. He also told Lee the decision to hold the summit in the island city of Singapore was made very consciously and offered thanks. Trump's meeting and uh, working lunch with Lee uh, took uh, place one day before he and Kim come face to face on the island city state. The two leaders are set to meet at 9 a.m. Uh, on Tuesday, that's uh, in two hours, Singapore time. Singapore time is, uh, uh, well, I don't need to do the math. Kim Jong-un held his own meeting with Lee earlier on Sunday after landing in the island city state hours ahead of the president. 
who arrived fresh from a contentious G7 summit. Well, the president took some more, um, uh, took some parting words, some parting shots, if you will, at Canada and its prime minister, Justin Trudeau, and the U.S. allies over trade policy as they made final preparations for this summit in Singapore. Fair trade is now to be called fool trade if it is not reciprocal, he tweeted. He continued, sorry, we cannot let our friends or enemies take advantage of us on trade anymore. We must put the American worker first. His tweets came after he left early from the divisive G7 meeting in Canada. After leaving that summit, the president announced that the U.S. will was pulling back its endorsement of the G7 communique in part because of what he called false statements at a news conference by Trudeau. German Chancellor Angela Merkel, she called President Trump's refusal to endorse the communique sobering and a bit depressing. She said the European Union was preparing to implement countermeasures against U.S. tariffs on imported steel and aluminum. In other news, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes, a Republican out of California, has given the Justice Department until Tuesday to provide access to documents concerning the FBI's alleged informant looking into any Russian ties to President Trump's campaign in 2016. In a letter sent Friday to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, the congressman said the records should be provided to all committee members. Uh, And by the way, he's the House Intelligence Committee chairman uh, to all uh, committee members and designated staff rather than just to so-called Gang of Eight, which refers to Republican and Democratic leaders in both houses of Congress, as well as top lawmakers from the intelligence panels. DOJ continues to obfuscate and delay its production using an array of tactics such as incorrectly categorizing the uh, requested documents. Uh, as a gang of eight level material in order to limit access, wrote Nunez, uh, referring to an April 30th subpoena for the documents. Such conduct by DOJ is unacceptable because the gang of eight is a legal fiction that has no basis outside of the confines of presidential approval and reporting of covert actions. His letter was in response to an offer by the Justice Department and the FBI to bring the gang of eight in an effort to blunt criticism from the House conservatives who repeatedly have pressed for documents and questioned the department's conduct in the Russian investigation. Meanwhile, Manafort has pushed back against Mueller's latest charges in his bid to revoke his conditional release. Well, never Trumper uh, Robert De Niro launched a profanity-laced tirade against the president during Sunday's politically charged Tony Awards, earning a standing ovation from those present. I won't repeat, nor I cannot, nor would I repeat what he said, but um, he had his uh, fists clenched overhead, uh, leaving panic-stricken broadcast censors trying to bleep out the remark. It's no longer down with Trump, he began his uh, statement saying. The U.S. viewers at home heard dead silence, though in other regions the uh, word re- uh, reportedly weren't censored. The expletives sparked a soaring, a rather a roaring reaction from the audience with many of the celebrities standing up. His outburst arguably upstaged the big winners at the Tony Awards, the American grown-up musical The Band's Visit, uh, outmuscled the acclaimed and sprawling British import Harry Potter and the Cursed Child for the most Tony Awards, capturing 10 statuettes, including Best Musical. Potter captured six Tonys, including Best Play, Book, Lighting, Sound Design, Orchestrations, and Director for John Tiffany. And on this day in 2001, Timothy McVeigh, 30 years, uh, 33 years old, is executed by injection, lethal injection at the federal prison at Terre Haute, Indiana, for the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing that killed 168. And in 1993, the Steven Spielberg science fiction film Jurassic Park opens in wide release two days after its world premiere in Washington, D.C. And of course, Jurassic World is set to be released 
any time now. 15 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, that is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un will begin their historic summit with a one-on-one meeting focusing on their personal rapport as they seek a deal for Pyongyang to give up its nuclear weapons, according to an administration official on Monday. Now, some of what has concerned many observers who don't actually know what's going on on the inside is what definitions are being used by the U.S. as opposed to the definitions that are being understood by the North. Well, the length of the initial private meeting hasn't been determined, uh, but the two leaders will likely make that decision depending on how their talk unfolds. A bilateral meeting of the U.S. and North Korean delegations will follow Uh, In a final round of pre-summit preparation, top negotiators from the two sides met on Monday at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. That meeting included North Korean Vice President, uh, Vice Minister, rather, of Foreign Affairs and U.S. negotiator Allison Hooker, who is the National Security Council's director for Korea, Randall Shriver, Assistant Defense Secretary for Asian and Pacific Security Affairs. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said the president and the entire U.S. team was looking forward to the summit, which is set to begin with that private meeting in a couple of hours, Singapore time, which is Tuesday morning at 9. He said, we have uh, had some substantial and detailed meetings to date, including this morning with the North Koreans. The issues on the table remain stubborn and complex for the two countries that have been at odds for nearly 70 years. North Korea possesses nuclear weapons and long-range missiles believed to be capable of hitting anywhere in the United States. A confrontation between the U.S. and North Korea has been brewing for decades, and the president is offering security assurances and economic development in return for the complete dismantling of Pyongyang nuclear arsenal. Momentum appeared to be building for the deal. North Korean state-run news reported on Monday that Mr. Kim was seeking denuclearization of the Korean peninsula in response to a changed era. State-run news said the summit would address wide-ranging and profound views on the issue of establishing new DPRK-U.S. relations, the issue of building a permanent and durable peacekeeping mechanism on the Korean peninsula, the issue of realizing the denuclearization of the Korean peninsula, and other issues of mutual concern as required by the changing era will be exchanged at the DPRK U.S. summit talks. And again, that's a quote from the North Korean state-run news. Well, the statement was delivered to North Koreans by the country's most famous news anchor in the face of Mr. Kim's propaganda machine. The report appeared to put Mr. Kim and Mr. Trump on the same page for the summit. Mr. Trump also has called this moment a rare opportunity for change in North Korea. And he said the summit is a one-shot chance to resolve the nuclear threat and bring peace and prosperity to the reclusive and poverty-stricken communist country. And although a promising development ahead of the historic talks, Mr. Kim's commitment to a goal and an agreement on the terms and extent of denuclearization remain a question. Still, the rhetoric out of Pyongyang bolstered Mr. Trump's optimism heading into this first-ever meeting between a U.S. president and a North Korean leader. We've got a very interesting meeting in particular tomorrow, referring to today's meeting, the president said, and I just think it's going to work out very nicely. Uh, during a meeting with the Singapore Prime Minister, Lee Lung, the president made that statement. 
Well, we know now who will be uh, present at the meetings after the president meets with uh, Kim Jong-un on his own. And one of the questions that have been raised for those historians who remember events as they unfolded following the uh, Korean War, President Trump is being urged to press Kim Jong-un to make a goodwill gesture and return the USS Pueblo, a U.S. Navy ship seized and captured by North Korea 50 years ago and used as a propaganda instrument. Well, the North Korean Navy seized the Pueblo back in 1968. I wasn't very old, but I remember hearing about it after firing at the vessel while it was mapping the North Korean coast from international waters 16 miles offshore. It fired on the vessel, injured 10 crew members, killed one U.S. sailor. North Korea held 82 surviving sailors prisoners for 11 months under harsh conditions that included beatings and interrogations. North Korea has held on to that vessel, a former World War II supply ship converted for signals intelligence spying as a form of trophy, turning it, turning it rather into a museum in Pyongyang. Still, uh, still there in this uh, June 22, 2006 um, uh, last seen uh, photo, by demanding Pueblo's return, the president should uh, quickly be able to seize, uh, rather size up his opponent quickly, according to those who uh, believe that ought to be an issue. If the U.S. demanded the ship's release, whether Kim proved willing to do so would be most telling as to how desperate he is to make a deal. Well, the cause also got a pitch from a retired longtime uh, host, Greta Van Susteren, a North Korean naval force, seized the American intelligence ship. Uh, she points out, as uh, those who know history would recall, the USS Pueblo on display in Pyongyang. Maybe the North Koreans will return the USS Pueblo, she tweeted before the summit, summit rather, adding that North Korea captured the Pueblo in 68, holds, uh, holds it in Pyongyang Harbor. Um, uh, perhaps the uh, NK will return our Navy ship. It is time, actually, past time. Again, the ship remains at the Victorious War Museum in Pyongyang. Whether or not that will be an issue to be raised, not altogether clear. Well, summits are tricky things. Kennedy, Nixon, Reagan, they learned the hard way. Perhaps President uh, Trump will learn the hard way as well. But if you recall, in his 1961 inaugural address, President John F. Kennedy spoke about the possibility of daring diplomacy to thaw even the coldest relationships. Let us never negotiate out of fear, he said, but let us never fear to negotiate. Well, those words, often cited by President Barack Obama, could also be repurposed by President Trump in the 45th president were into uh, quotations as he embarks on this highest stakes U.S. summit in a generation, sitting down in Singapore today their time tomorrow, ours, uh, with Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. But Kennedy's most consequential summit, which came just months into his presidency, was an unmitigated disaster, according to historians. Despite careful preparation, the young president didn't heed the warnings of advisors familiar with the Soviet counterpart Nikita Khrushchev, whom he met in Vienna in 61. It was June, in fact. Kennedy's attempts to establish a friendly rapport, which experts had cautioned him against, came across as weakness. After the summit, he knew immediately he'd blown it, as did William Lloyd Sturman, a national security aide who traveled with Kennedy to Vienna. It was Al Capone meets Little Boy Blue, Sturman said. At the time, Kennedy was not used to dealing with a thug like... Uh, Khrushchev and the Cuban Missile Crisis can be traced back to Khrushchev's feeling that Kennedy was weak. 
Historians generally share that conclusion, their understanding of that and other consequential summits like President Nixon's 1972 trip to China and the meeting between President Ronald Reagan and Russia's Mikhail Gorbachev in 1986 especially worries them about grave risks of Trump's brash media-centric diplomacy as he comes face-to-face with Kim. And although he often criticized his predecessors for failing to resolve the nuclear stalemate on the Korean Peninsula, Trump seems largely indifferent to history and its lessons. According to a recent report, he asked Canada's prime minister about his country's military setting fire to the White House during World uh, the War of 1812. It was, in fact, the British troops who did that. Well, Trump uh, heading to and now in Singapore for the summit, an effort to stave off a nuclear-armed North Korea with his characteristic nonchalance, saying that his lack of traditional preparation, National Security Council meetings, of which there have been none, uh, thick briefing books and hours of Situation Room strategizing will be more than offset by his instincts and attitude. Now, that may, in fact, be the case. It's more likely that it won't, but this is an unconventional president. This is an unconventional opportunity. Uh, says uh, one observer, the presidential historian Michael Betchloss, this is a neophyte who has given every indication that he does not like to do his homework and the cost could end up being very great. We've never seen a president who wears as such a badge of honor that he won't prepare. There's no president in American history that has done that and certainly not on a summit as important as this. For Americans, the lives of their children are literally depending on what is said. He is the guardian of every American life. How seriously does he take that responsibility? Now, the presumption is that he is ill-prepared, but do we actually know that to be the case? I think one could argue that it's probably the case, but again, we're somewhat speculating. It's been less than a year since Trump threatened to annihilate Kim Jong-un, whom he called Rocket Man. He's since softened his words, but he believes his bellicose rhetoric amplified on Twitter had a significant role in getting North Korea to suggest face-to-face talks. I believe that's probably true. Those comments reminded some of the so-called madman theory that has, was later ascribed to Nixon and his envoys attempting in uh, 1969 rather, to convince the Russians that the U.S. president was unhinged and capable of doing anything to resolve the stalemate in Vietnam. Given his admiration for Nixon, Trump could be using it as a model. John Farrell, author of Richard Nixon, A Life, published last year, suggests... Well, what actually happens, whether or not Donald Trump's lack of preparation or private preparation, how that plays out, what role China will play, how long the meetings will last, and if there will be others following that are constructive, that's all speculation at this point. But at 9 o'clock, their time, and that's what, 7, 8, that's a 4, 5, 6 o'clock hour time, uh, p.m., Uh, Those talks will begin first with the president and Kim Jong-un on their own with translators, then others on their teams will uh, will join them. By the way, another thing that makes this very unconventional, Dennis Rodman arrived in Singapore to help with the Trump-Kim nuclear summit after the White House told the worm to stay out of the negotiations. Well, he's in the country. Whether or not he plays a role at all remains to be seen, but it couldn't get much weirder than that. 32 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 37 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump certainly shook up the G7, demanding fair 
reciprocal trade. Well, with all the mainstream media hoopla surrounding the G7 summit this past weekend in Quebec, Canada, one thing is clear. President Donald Trump, as always, dominated the narrative. And he proved once again that he relishes being the anti-establishment guy, this time sending the heads of Europe's globalist leaders spinning. Well, the G7 summit usually amounts to little more than a couple of days of Western allies in Japan hobnobbing for photo ops while proposing various jointly agreed-upon socioeconomic agendas and then jetting back home again. It's more pageantry than policy, but this time Trump saw an opportunity to press his case that the U.S. has been long... long been getting a raw deal from its closest allies when it comes to trade, not to mention NATO. He declared in advance looking forward to straightening out unfair trade deals with the G7 countries. But he offered this caveat. If it doesn't happen, we come out even better. Well, Trump caught everyone off guard by throwing out an unexpected proposal, unexpected in light of his uh, recent implementation of tariffs on steel and aluminum. He suggested no tariffs, no barriers. That's the way it should be. And no subsidies. I even said no tariffs, he added. Well, ultimately, that's what you want. You want tariff-free, no barriers, and you want no subsidies because you have some countries subsidizing industries, and that's not fair. So you go tariff-free, you go barrier-free, you go subsidy-free. Didn't quite... um ring with the other G7 members. The leaders were seemingly stunned, but it became increasingly obvious that this was not a direction they wished to go. Instead, Europe's leaders saw the summit as an opportunity to hammer Trump's trade policies. Trump was um, coming to their sandbox and they were there to scold him for failing to play by their rules for their vision of globalism. Even after all the tension, it appeared that G7 summit would produce a jointly agreed upon communique, essentially a commitment to fight for a rules-based international trading system and to continue to fight protectionism. Trump agreed to sign that communique as he quickly dashed off to a much more important summit in Singapore with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. Well, all seemed, well, fairly well for a few hours until Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's follow-up press conference. He referred to Trump's tariffs as insulting and insisted that uh, that he would move forward with retaliatory measures on the 1st of July, applying equivalent tariffs to the ones that the United States have unjustly applied to us. Well, Trump and his way to Singapore quickly announced that he was withdrawing his signature on the G7 communique based on Justin's false statement at his news conference and the fact that Canada is charging massive tariffs to our U.S. farmers, workers and companies. I have instructed our U.S. reps not to endorse the communique as we uh, look at tariffs on automobiles flooding the U.S. market. That was followed by a series of messages in which Trump focused on his primary theme of America not getting a fair shake. Trump wrote, fair trade is now to be called fool's trade if it is not reciprocal, later adding, we're like the piggy bank that everybody's robbing and that ends. Well, Europe's leaders have clearly become increasingly frustrated with the president of the United States, seemingly his unpredictable behavior. He, on the other hand, appears to have accomplished exactly what he intended, exposing the unfavorable trade imbalance between the U.S. and G7. Now, the threat of igniting a trade war was supposed to be sufficient to have him back off. It didn't work this time around. We'll see what happens next. We may actually have a trade war. Meanwhile, Chinese government hackers, they've compromised the computers of a Navy contractor, stealing massive amounts of highly sensitive data related to undersea warfare, including secret plans to develop a supersonic anti-ship missile for use on U.S. submarines in 2020, according to American officials. Well, the uh, breaches occurred in January and February, the officials, uh, officials said, speaking on the condition of anonymity to discuss an ongoing investigation. 
which always concerns me a bit. If you're speaking on condition of anonymity because you're not supposed to be talking about it, why are we reading about it? Well, the hackers targeted a contractor who works for the Naval Undersea Warfare Center, a military organization headquartered in Newport, Rhode Island, that conducts research and development for submarines and underwater weaponry. The officials didn't identify the contractor, but taken were 614 gigabytes of material relating to a closely held project known as Sea Dragon, as well as signals and sensor data, submarine radio room information relating to cryptographic systems and the Navy's submarine sensor data development units, electronic warfare library. Well, the Washington Post agreed to withhold certain details about the compromised missile project at the request of the Navy, which argued that their release could harm national security. The data stolen was of a highly sensitive nature, despite being housed on the contractor's unclassified network. The official said the material, when aggregated, could be considered classified, a fact that raises concerns about the Navy's ability to oversee contractors tasked with developing cutting-edge weapons. The breach is part of China's long-running effort to blunt the U.S. advantage in military technology and become the preeminent power in East Asia. The news comes as the Trump administration is seeking to secure Beijing's support and persuading North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons, even as tensions persist between the United States and China over trade and defense matters. The Navy is leading the investigation into the breach with the assistance of the FBI, officials said. The FBI declined rightfully to comment. By the way, on Friday, the Pentagon Inspector General's office said the Defense Secretary, Jim Mattis, had asked it to review the contractor cybersecurity issues arising from the Post's story. Not just limited to this uh, breach, but uh, in general, the Navy's system. Well, Iranian officials in a first um, have admitted to facilitating the 9-11 terrorist attack in the United States by secretly aiding the free travel of al-Qaeda operatives who eventually went on to fly commercial airlines into the Twin Towers in New York City, according to new remarks from a senior Iranian official. Mohammad Javad Larajani, an international affairs assistant in the Iran's in uh, the Iran's judiciary, disclosed in Farsi language remarks broadcast on Iran's state controlled television that Iranian intelligence officials secretly helped provide the al Qaeda attackers with passage and gave them refuge in the Islamic Republic, according to an English translation uh, published by Al Arabiya. Our government agreed not to stamp the passports of some of them because they were on transit flights for two, two hours and they were resuming their flights without having their passports stamped. However, their movements are under the complete supervision of the Iranian intelligence, he said, uh, was quoted as having said. The remarks represent the first time senior Iranian officials have publicly admitted, to our knowledge, to aiding al-Qaeda and playing a direct role in facilitating the 9-11 attacks. The U.S. government has long accused Iran of playing a role in the attacks and even fined the Islamic Republic billions as a result. Now we know rightly so. The U.S. 9-11 Commission, assembled to investigate the attacks, concluded that Iran played a role in facilitating the al-Qaeda terrorists. The uh, speaker admitted, the Iranian speaker, Larijani, admitted the Iranian officials did not stamp the passports of the al-Qaeda militants in order to obfuscate their movements and prevent detection by foreign governments. Al-Qaeda operative also uh, were given safe refuge in Iran. The Americans took this as evidence of Iran's cooperation with al-Qaeda and viewed the passage of an airplane through Iran's airspace, which had one of, it, uh, one of the pilots who carried out the attacks and a Hezbollah military leader sitting next to him on board as evidence of direct cooperation with al-Qaeda through the Lebanese Hezbollah. 
Lahrajani was quoted as saying in the May 30th interview, which is gaining traction on social media. The U.S. government has not formally commented on the interview, but did highlight it in an official tweet from the State Department's Arab-only Twitter page. Here at home, Senate uh, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman rather Chuck Grassley isn't backing down as the Justice Department rebuffs his repeated attempts to speak with the FBI agent whose interview with Michael Flynn was used to in, uh, indict the now the ex-national security advisor in the Russia probe. This is no ordinary criminal uh, case, Grassley said, uh, writing rather in a June 6th letter to the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Congress has a right to know the full story and to know it now. Grassley is pressing, as we mentioned earlier, his request anew after the Department of Justice once again rejected his bid to speak with FBI agent Joe um, Pintko and to obtain the FBI's records of that interview and the drama continues. 46 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. By the way, coming up in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Paul Angoni. He's the author of 101 Questions You Need to Ask in Your 20s and let's face it, your 30s as well. That's coming up in the next hour. Well, the Supreme Court ruled today that Ohio was allowed to purge eligible voters from the state's registration records if they have not cast ballots in a while. Now, a while may be part of what uh, the dispute was around in a 5-4 decision issued by Justice Samuel Alito and pretty much cut by party lines, according to which side of the political spectrum these justices were appointed. The high court ruled that Ohio law, it's, uh, Ohio's law rather, to trigger the removal of inactive voters from the state's registry can be enforced. State officials argue that the process used by Ohio for more than 20 years is constitutional and legal and meant to ensure election security. Civil liberties groups, they challenge the state's program for removing thousands of people from the voter rolls based on their failure to vote in recent elections, claiming it violated the National Voter Registration Act. The only question before us is whether it violates federal law, and it does not, Justice Alito wrote. Well, it is um, uh, undisputed that Ohio does not remove a registrant on change of uh, residence grounds unless the registrant is sent and fails to mail back a return card and then fails to vote for an additional four years, Alito wrote in his opinion. He concluded, we have no authority to second-guess Congress or to decide whether Ohio's supplemental process is the ideal method for keeping its voting rolls up to date. The only question before us is whether it violates federal law. It does not. Under Ohio rules, registered voters who fail to vote in a two-year period are targeted for eventual removal from voter rolls, even if they haven't removed um, uh, and still remain eligible. The state says it removes names from registration only after local election boards send notices and if there is no voting activity for the next four years. Well, the state first um, uh, compared its voter rolls to the U.S. Postal Service list of people who have reported a change of address. Some residents, though, move without notifying the post office of a change of address. Ohio has used voter inactivity to remove people from the registration since 1994. And the Federal Communications uh, uh, Commission narrowly voted to dismantle the Obama-era Internet regulations in December, the rules impose utility-style regulations on Internet service providers, or ISPs, and prevented them from favoring their own services or certain customers over that of competitors. It's official. The repeal of net neutrality, as it came to be known, took effect 
today. Well, the FCC today touted the implementation of what it calls the Restoring Internet Freedom Order, saying the order replaces unnecessary heavy-handed regulations dating back to 1934 with strong consumer protections, increased transparency and common sense regulations that will promote investment and broadband deployment. The 2015 decision to impose these heavy-handed utility-style regulations on the Internet was a mistake. FCC Chairman Ajit Pai said in a video adding that the rules were a solution in search of a problem. Well, FCC Commissioner Jessica Rosenworkel, or something like that, called the rollback misguided and bad news in a statement. And there's been a lot of... uh, Uh, howling about uh, the dramatic impact this is going to have. Well, now we'll see what actually happens as opposed to what has been predicted and if it's as devastating as uh, some would suggest it will be. And finally, Salem city officials said during a Monday press conference, that was today, that they are considering the use of power-activated, powdered, activated carbon to remove toxins from their drinking water. Now, this is a short-term solution Uh, to remove the toxins from the Salem drinking water that could cost about $2 million, and again, short term. The solution would cost uh, that much this season and be absorbed by the budget, says the Salem Public Works Director. The city is also looking at using powdered activated carbon next season at about the same cost saying, we are fortunate that the council has adopted small and steady rate increases over the past 10 years. I guess they're fortunate. I'm not sure ratepayers would agree until today uh, that we are well positioned financially in the utility to be able to afford these kinds of costs. Salem is also looking at longer term solutions such as applying ozone to the water, which could carry a 20 to 30 million dollar price tag. I'm not sure that's already covered with the rate increases. Well, yesterday, the city said results from the tests taken on Friday indicated that the presence of cyanotoxins uh, was, in fact, below EPA advisory levels for vulnerable populations. The city decided to extend the drinking water advisory for at least two more weeks as a precautionary measure. The results we received Sunday indicate the water is safe to drink for everyone. That's a quote from the Salem city manager, Steve Powers. But he also said that he has uh, continued to drink the water throughout the advisory. The water advisory applies to children under the age of six, people with weak immune systems, people receiving dialysis or similar treatments, the elderly, pregnant and nursing women and pets. The decision to extend the advisory, we understand, may cause some concern among our residents and water customers, Powers went on to say today. We received considerable feedback that the on-again, off-again nature of our advisory was causing confusion. I believe extending the advisory until we can assure our residents that the water is safe to drink is the best course of action. Well, before Sunday's test results, the city announced that samples taken on Wednesday found cyanotoxin levels above EPA advisory levels. And at the time, they said the warning would not be lifted until the city received two straight days of clean water results. Well, Salem water, it originates from Detroit Lake, which is uh, going through an algae bloom that creates the natural poison cyanotoxins. Well, the city said last week it's going to spend $35,000 on testing equipment that will give results in eight hours as opposed to the several days of the past instead of that current um, stretch, uh, will give us time, will give us a warning that toxins may be on the way so we can address how we treat the water or maybe even close the gates, says the public works directors, uh, director, rather, Peter Fernandez. Well, water stations are set up uh, throughout the Salem metro area. City officials encourage residents to bring their own containers. Uh, one of uh, uh, one parent in the area with three children, including an 18-month-old's 
uh, told KGW News that she kept the family on the bottled water even after the the first warning was lifted. At this point, she says, they're brushing their teeth. We're washing our 18-month-old with bottled water and just trying to keep it out of their mouths and make sure everything is uh, dry before we use it. Uh, she says that she's not ready for a, a summer full of on-again, off-again warnings. The city of Salem is doing its best to gear up for that possibility, however. In response to Salem's drinking water crisis, the Oregon Health Authority announced it would prepare state rules that require testing for cyanotoxins throughout the state for certain bodies of water at risk of toxic algae bloom. So two more weeks, Salem. Two more weeks. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk a bit about the suicides that occurred last week that has everyone talking and thinking about whether or not we are sufficiently addressing mental health issues in this country. We'll also talk with the author of 101 Questions You Need to Ask in Your 20s and, quite frankly, Your 30s. Paul Angoni will be my guest. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the five o'clock hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk with Paul Angoni. He is the author of 101 Questions You Need to Ask in Your 20s. The book is published by Moody and a great, another great resource available to young people who are navigating life uh, apart from higher education into um, their 30s. So we'll talk with him about that. I also will remind you of the status of that petition to end state funding of abortion in the state of Oregon. So stick around for more more details on that as the uh, number of organizations supporting this uh, effort has broadened. So that's coming up in our final segment of today's show. Well, fashion designer Kate Spade's death on Tuesday, which was followed by the uh, suicide of Anthony Bourdain a day or two later, has uh, reminded many Americans of the enormous toll of suicide. It's a growing problem. It claims nearly 45,000 lives a year here in the United States. Suicide rates in the U.S. has risen nearly 30 percent since 1999, according to a report that was released on Thursday from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Suicides increased in both men and women in all ethnic groups and in both urban and rural areas. Suicide and self-harm is a category that includes attempted suicide. Cost to the nation is about $70 billion a year in medical care and lost work time. Not that that um, is the most significant uh, issue. It certainly is uh, significant, but the fact that men and women are taking their own lives, and that includes young people and children as well. Nearly half of people who died by suicide had a known mental health condition, according to the CDC. And in the case of um, Kate Spade, family members have given different accounts of her struggle. In media interviews, her sister has said that she believes the designer suffered from bipolar disorder, also known as manic depression. The designer's husband said in a statement that she suffered from depression and anxiety for many years and was actively seeking help. Well, regardless of the exact diagnosis in that case, it seems that Kate Spade was among the millions of Americans suffering from serious mental illness. Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, a professor of psychiatry at Columbia University, who had no personal knowledge of the case, says the country needs to take suicide and mental illness more seriously, noting that both depression and bipolar disorder can be treated successfully and that suicide is often preventable. Suicide is not an acceptable outcome for depression. And although more Americans die from suicides than car accidents or opioids, the uh, stigma of mental illness prevents suicide from getting much attention. That is until perhaps the last uh, 
few days. Apart from fleeting news coverage when celebrities such as comedian Robin Williams take their own lives, according to Dr. Lieberman. Well, people suffering from serious mental illness are at high risk of suicide. Dr. Jennifer Payne, who's the director of the Women's Mood Disorder Center in Johns Hopkins Hospital, about 10 percent of people with major depression die from suicide. About 15 percent of people with bipolar disorder die from suicide. In general, mental illness first appears when people are in their teens or 20s. Sometimes friends and family of people with a milder form of bipolar disorder, one that doesn't induce psychotic behavior, can mistake their condition for depression. People who experience milder manic episodes called um, hip, let me get it right, hip hypomania, rather, can seem energetic and productive rather than deranged. And it's difficult for the average person to know. It's also common for people with mental illness to suffer from multiple conditions such as bipolar disorder and panic disorders. A proportion of people with mental illness also suffer from substance abuse as well, sometimes self-medicating to ease their moods. And although drugs such as lithium can effectively treat bipolar disorders, some people with the condition are reluctant to use the medication because they feel it dulls their creativity. And although mental illness can be a life-threatening uh, condition. Many people with depression or bipolar disorder lead successful lives. Actress uh, Carrie Fisher and Margot Kidder, for example, spoke openly about coping with bipolar disorder. Pop star Mariah Carey and Demi Lovato, they also have acknowledged having bipolar disorder. Abraham Lincoln spoke of his depression, and some n- now believe that British Prime Minister Winston Churchill suffered from bipolar disorder, according to uh, Dr. Ken Duckworth, medical director of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Now, that's speculation, but uh, it does uh, give us some indication of the degree of of uh, productivity one can have. Uh, Psychologist Kay Redfield Jameson, a professor at Johns Hopkins who has bipolar disorder, has written of the link between bipolar disorder and creativity in her book, Touched with Fire, Manic Depressive Illness and the Artistic Temperament. Well, beyond medication, people with the uh, condition can benefit from uh, other kinds of therapies as well. And uh, this is a a season in which perhaps thinking more soberly about uh, whether or not mental illness is present and what what treatments might be available is certainly uh, worth consideration. I read with great interest, as did many people, a piece that was written um, by Bethany uh, Mandel in The Washington Post or rather the New York Post, about a family member who ended their life. She was responding to the death of Kate Spade. That was followed shortly thereafter, of course, by Anthony Bourdain, who took his life last week as well. But she writes about a personal experience that perhaps helps those who are contemplating suicide consider uh, the cost of decisions that are made to end one's life. And she writes, 13 years ago, late in the evening of September 18th, my cousin called with news that would forever change my life. Her words are etched in my brain, and years later, I can hit play and hear them as if they are being uttered live. Bethany, I don't know how to tell you this, so I'm going to say it. Your dad died today. He committed suicide. I handed the phone, she writes, to my boyfriend and let out a primal scream. I was 19, a sophomore at Rutgers University, and had just transferred uh, to uh, campus from City College in New York. I would learn he hanged himself in a shed behind his house. He was 53. That day flashed back at me on Tuesday with the news of Kate Spade's death by hanging at the age of 55. Spade and my father had little in common outside of their ages and their chosen method of death, except seemingly their struggles with mental illness. Mental illness doesn't discriminate by wealth or success. It can happen to one of the most famous fashion designers in the world 
or a truck driver on Long Island. Another similarly similarity rather between Spade and my father was their last uh, overtures to their only children, a daughter. The Post reported Spade left a suicide note addressing her 13-year-old daughter, Frances Beatrix Spade. This has nothing to do with you, the note reads, in part, according to sources. Don't feel guilty. Ask your dad. As one of his final acts, my father, again quoting from the article, my father changed his outgoing voicemail message on the day he died. If you called his phone, it went straight to voicemail. That day, the message would say, you have reached Bethany's dad. That was how he last saw himself, just as my father. In the coming days and weeks, we'll see remembrances of Spade as a fashion icon and a strong woman, pioneer, making an indelible mark on her industry. In its obituary for the visionary, the New York Times described her as the woman whose handbags carried girls into adulthood. But beyond the tragedy of Spade's death, there is the weight of the tragedy her daughter will carry into adulthood. While Spade assured her daughter it's nothing to do with you, it will have everything to do with Francis for the rest of her life. There is a great deal of discussion about how much the decision to take one's life is made out of free will. In her book on her uh, son Dylan's murder-suicide at Columbine High School, Sue Klebold writes of a conversation she had with a psychologist and suicide researcher, uh, Matthew Nock at Harvard. In his conversations with Klebold, he called suicide a dysfunction in decision-making. Klebold explains, if suicide seems like the only way out of an existence so painful it has become intolerable, is that really an exercise of free will? Klebold describes herself as a survivor of suicide. This is a profoundly illustrative way to describe those left behind. We survive. Suicide has a way of imprinting an indelible mark on the souls of those it leaves behind. In the wake of high-profile suicides like Spade's, there is a great deal of discussion about the person who committed the deed and far too little about the survivors who are especially in need of support and guidance. Suicide is one of the top causes of death in the country across demographics and one of the least funded for or researched. As a result, we have little understanding about what leads those like Kate Spade and my father to commit the act. We don't talk about the act, nor do we talk about the impact it has on those around the deceased. We often hear from those uh, who have tried uh, or attempted suicide by surviving that they believe the world would be better off without them. While sharing suicide prevention hotline numbers can help a great deal, sharing the perspective and grief of those left behind can as well. Because those still in this world, but, it, but contemplating an exit, must know that their feelings of self-worthlessness are not shared by those who love them. If someone is contemplating suicide, they should know the utter devastation that will be left in their wake. While those who have died may have thought the world a better place without them, we survivors are living witnesses to the fact that it is not, that our worlds will not ever be whole without them in it. Bethany Mandel is a part-time editor and columnist at the Jewish Daily Forward, and her piece was published in the New York Post on June the 8th responding to the suicide of Kate Spade and recalling the fallout from the suicide of her father. I would also encourage anyone contemplating suicide, in addition to calling a hotline, to talk with a pastor or someone with a relationship with Christ who might be able to give perspective beyond the moment, the day, the impulse. Um, and uh, we certainly need to be praying for those we suspect may be suffering from a mental illness and try to seek uh, the help they need. Coming up, we're going to talk with uh, Paul 
Angoni. He is the author of several books. The one we're going to be talking about is his latest, 101 Questions You Need to Ask in Your 20s. He also has other resources that can help you navigate this challenging time in the 21st century for millennials. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad you are with us today. To find important life answers in your 20s, and I have a vague recollection of my 20s. It's becoming more and more vague as the years go by. You need to start with good questions. My next guest is an author, a speaker, and a blogger. And he um, he's dedicated the last 12 years to helping 20-somethings. In his, um, and in his book, he culminates his work to give readers wisdom through major life questions. My guest is um, Paul Angoni. He uh, captures the hilarious, freakishly accurate assessments of life as a modern-day 20-something and 30-something, facing real millennial problems. Now he's digging even deeper through asking questions like, what's the best way to know if you're actually ready to get married? Or where's the future of work heading? And what does having a successful career look like today? And how do I make a choice when I don't know what to choose? Well, Pat, uh, Paul Angony is one of the nation's leading voices to and for the millennial generation. He's the best-selling author of 101 Secrets for Your 20s and All Grown Up, spelled with an A. He's a sought-after national uh, keynote speaker and the creator of allgrownup.com. Again, grown spelled with an A, um, which is read by millions of people in 190 countries. He's also earned a master's degree in organizational leadership, has worked with companies like Intel Security, Wells Fargo, Aflac, that I sound kind of like him, Aflac, anyway, um, Aflac to help them attract, develop, and retain millennials. And he contributes to and has been featured in publications like Bloomberg, Business Insider, and the Chicago Tribune. He lives in Denver, Colorado with his family. He joins us today to talk about his book, 101 Questions You Need to Ask in Your 20s. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me in that great intro. Well, you know, asking questions is a good place to start, but it's not oftentimes encouraged as you're trying to navigate life in your 20s when for the first time you're making some pretty major decisions that will uh, will have an impact on the course your life takes in years to come. Yeah, I guess, you know, it's it's my third book, so I guess third time is the <laughs> charm when I, when I feel like, yeah, you know, instead of, you know, I think most self-help books, and this could be class, you know, it's probably classified in the self-help section, are there to give somebody a formula or to give them the answers of how the author achieved success and now follow their formula and you will be successful as well for about three weeks until you realize it doesn't really work for you. Hmm. Um, So I guess that was the goal. Yeah. With this is to, you know, how can it be the most helpful guide resource book uh, friend mentor that I could do? I, you know, I think it starts with good questions, you know, and getting, uh, the reader to answer the questions for themselves. So instead of being self-help, you know, more self-revelation or self-discovery, you know, and, and not uh, the answers that I'm going to give them, but I'll guide them to hopefully find some profound answers for their life. Because I think your 20s are smothered with a lot of questions uh, and the big ones, you know, about what are you going to be doing with your life? And it's too overwhelming. So let's yeah. break that down and really talk about it. Yeah. And I appreciate that you emphasize the expectation that they should already have all the answers, especially if they've been through university, is an unrealistic one. And for a young person oh, to yeah. recognize this is a great place to start asking really good, uh, pointed directions from people who may have answers that are helpful to me is a great balance to begin with. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I 
it took me a long time to realize that that a sign of maturity is being comfortable in a sense with how much you don't know mm. <laughs> and then and then and then working hard to learn more yeah I definitely think there's that expectation and it's a myth of some sorts but yeah that we're going to climb the steps get to the top swing open the doors and there's our dream life and dream job and dream spouse just waiting there for us and I think for most of us we realize that that linear climb doesn't quite work exactly like it was sold to us uh, at the beginning of college or the beginning of a career or whatever it might be. And so, yeah, it's that time to hopefully ask some really strategic questions. And even if you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, whenever you're going through a change or transition so that you're directing, you know, your ship, you're directing that path in in a more strategic direction uh, than maybe before if you weren't asking yourself questions at the onset. Yeah. And in fact, I would agree. These are really good questions for any of us to ask when we are at one of those crossroads. Well, tell us a little bit about your story and why you're so passionate about helping millennials. Yeah, I guess, you know, I think you summed it up well in even your intro in the way that you were describing the book in in the sense that I just felt like a complete failure for many years in my 20s. I felt like most of my friends were experiencing the success that I thought I was going to experience. And I, I didn't know where to start. I just felt depressed or anxious or overwhelmed. And I thought, man, I thought I went through all this school to learn something and know where I was going to be headed. And instead, I feel like I'm starting over in the basement. And, uh, and there's a lot of dark halls and locked doors, and uh, I don't know where to go. And so that's really where it started. This passion is I just started writing really for myself, almost as a journal, trying to figure out, okay, well, how do you figure this out? And then from there, it kept growing and growing because as I opened up to more friends and more mentors, I realized that I wasn't alone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then that became the, the true passion of mine to really, you know, hit down. I felt like, man, there's something really important going on here. I feel like our 20s are categorized as this really fun, sexy decade. You'll be traveling, living the life of your dreams. But instead, I feel like a lot of people are quietly struggling and not wanting to talk about it with anybody. So I felt like it was a very important thing to really dedicate, yeah, the last 12 years of my life towards. Yeah. Now, how much is this struggle a function of our timeline, the expectation that things are going to happen fairly quickly because you've spent years and years preparing academically, um, and we misunderstand the nature of life in general and the nature of uh, springing out of uh, an institution of higher learning into the real world? Yeah, I definitely think the timeline issue is a big one. And, uh, and I write about that in my, in my first book, actually, the, the 101 Secrets for Your 20s book. I write that, you know, I, I think millennials get knocked sometimes for having big dreams or big goals, you know, maybe unrealistic goals. And I don't think it's the dreams or the goals that are the problem. It's exactly what you pointed to. It's the timeline of how quickly you're going to see any kind of fruit uh, towards those goals. So I, I tell, you know, 20-somethings all the time now that pursuing a dream is like planting an avocado seed. It's going to take about nine, 10 years before you see any kind of fruit from, from doing that. And you have to water it consistently and feed the ground. And hopefully the timing is right at some point that you'll see fruit from that decision. Yeah. So you're right. I think it's a, and it is a byproduct, I think, of especially for this generation and the next who have grown up in such an instant, immediate, fast, ever-changing economy and world that I think we, we, we think success in our own personal lives is going to have, have the same timeline. And then we quickly realize as we are living back on our parents' 
couch uh, as, you know, 35% of 20-somethings are these days, the highest percentage we've ever seen, that life doesn't quite work out like we thought it was, quote-unquote, supposed to. Yeah, yeah. We're talking with uh, Paul Angony. He's the author of 101 Questions You Need to Ask in Your 20s, and let's be honest, your 30s, too. Uh, we're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments. By the way, the book is published by Moody and is a great resource to help you think through uh, these um, these early days of a young life uh, that can be challenging to navigate. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Paul Angony. He is the author of 101 Questions You Need to Ask in Your 20s. And let's be honest, Your 30s. It's published by Moody, and it's a great uh, book of questions to um, encourage young people to seek answers that will help help settle them, I suppose, in this uh, transitional period um, of life. Now, some of our listeners are from what we have uh, come to call the greatest generation. They faced a world war. They've had uh, to live with the deprivation and uh, the Great Depression and so on. And so it may be difficult for them to appreciate the challenges that are unique to the millennial generation. So let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges that are unique to this generation that are different from mine and those before. Sure. Yeah. And it's a great question. And I do, you know, the other part of my life is, as you mentioned in the intro, I go and speak at corporations Mm -hmm. and the leaders who are wrestling with this exact question. And they're usually struggling with retaining millennials or engaging them or or speaking to them. And and so first, I do I do like to break it down in the sense of, um, you know, I think we all, no matter if you're a boomer, greatest generation, whoever, whoever you are, you to think back at to times in your life when you felt like you didn't have it figured out or when you felt like you were going through a lot of change or questions, and to try to remember what it was like. Um, so whether you grew up in the 70s or the 90s or the 2000s, I think, I think that's a good relatable place to come from um, so that we can start a, a little bit of more equal ground. So I, I encourage parents and leaders who are you know, struggling to connect with a millennial in their life to do that, first of all. But then second of all, like you mentioned, you know, there are some unique challenges uh, you know, I know compared to facing World War II and, and the Great Depression, they might seem minute compared to those, and I definitely understand that. Um, but I, I think one of them that I think we're all experiencing now is just the rapid amount of change yeah. and, sh- and shifting. You know, I, I think all of us are trying to figure out what is the new, how do you be successful in this economy? Um, you know, I worked for, you know, you know, I know parents, you know, boomers that have worked for companies for 25 years and then they get laid off and they're back in that same place of what now my whole identity was wrapped up in this job. So, so I think there's so much changing taking place and there's millennials right now that might be doing a job five years from now that doesn't exist currently, you know, that you can't prepare for it because it doesn't yet exist, but it's going to be there in five years and be a great industry to work in. So I think for all of us, it's tough, but especially now when you're 23, 25, 27, you're trying to make a, a living, you're trying to maybe buy a house someday to, to grow up in that time, uh, I think is difficult. And I think a lot of millennials have struggled with that, trying to find their place and a, a place that feels like home amidst so much change. Yeah, yeah. Um, your book um, is a, a cure for what you refer to as OCD, obsessive comparison disorder, which is sort of yeah. baked into the culture and can uh, can prove a real challenge for young people who are trying to make it on their own. Um, talk a little bit about OCD and uh, the best cure for it. 
Yeah, and, and I do think that is another, you know, big thing for this generation because when you look at the most significant factor defining the millennial generation and then also now the Gen Z generation, which is coming up through mm-hmm. high school now, it, it's definitely technology. It's the Internet, it's social media, it's apps, it's the iPhone. You know, these are the big factors that have really defined this generation. And while comparison has always been around, you know, there was there was people probably comparing their huts, you know, thousands of years ago of who had the better built huts and who was killing the most deer or whatever it might be. You know, there's always been comparison. But now with social media, you can compare yourself at an instant global level with all your friends. And it's all these kind of PR spins as I define it, you know, these, you know, you're, we're almost like our own PR agents of our own life. And we're putting together these images that are just too good to be true yeah. <laughs> uh, about how amazing our life is. And so it really it becomes an isolating factor, which is kind of weird because social media is supposed to connect us. But instead, it becomes really isolating when you feel like you're the only one that is faking it because no one is really talking about what's going on behind the scenes, you know? So that's why I say in my, in my new book, the 101 questions to ask, you know, that um, are you noticing the picture behind everybody's Instagram photo? Because there's probably an ugly side to it, but we're just not talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. A realistic picture. Is there uh, really such a thing as a quarter life crisis that we're hearing about now? (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, there's thousands. It's It is amazing that thousands and thousands of people, not only in the U.S. but around the world, they find me and my website, the the All Grown Up website, in grown like you mentioned, groaning like you're in pain, G R O A N, um, because they're googling quarter life crisis. They're they're googling I'm going through a quarter life crisis, and so um, while it feels dramatic, I think I think I think the word feels a little overhyped and dramatic. I do think at the heart of it. It, it's pretty much just somebody going through a lot of intense questions, a lot of change, uh, where they feel like everything that they once knew has no longer proved to be true. And so they're, they're kind of, it's like a breaking down time where everything you used to depend on is kind of stripped away. And, um, and I do think it's an important season uh, for everyone to go through transition, not to try to fly through it or get to the other side as fast as possible but something to almost marinate in, so to speak. And again, that's why I wrote the questions book, so that it was a guide as you marinate in that transition, so you're making a more strategic decision out of it. Because I think transitions can be the most important seasons of our life, not just something to really blitz through as fast as possible. Yeah, yeah. Again, we're talking about the book titled 101 Questions You Need to Ask in Your 20s, and let's be honest, your 30s too. And my guest is Paul Angoni. He is the author of this and other books that are written specifically for and to help millennials. And I would I would add to help those of us who are not millennials perhaps better understand the challenges uh, they face. What would you say are millennials' biggest fears? Oh, man. I, you know, I think one of them is a fear of insignificance. Um, you know, I think really millennials are on the search for significance. And I think every generation has in a sense, but, but how they're finding significance, I think might be different. And I think it's questions of purpose and meaning, you know, they want to do work that matters. They want their life to matter. They want their voice to be heard. Um, They want to feel like they're doing something important, you know? So that's why I think, you know, millennials might flock to even, you know, startups, you know, startups are huge and kind of that's the new rock star 
of this generation is the startup um, because it feels like you're on the ground floor of something. You're important. You're playing an important role. You're not just a, another number in a cubicle of a large corporation. So I think that significance factor is a huge one, and, and it might not be uh, met through a higher income or a bigger house. It might be met through, you know, I'm working for a nonprofit or I'm traveling and I'm meeting people of different cultures. And this feels very significant to me. Mm-hmm. So I think there's this fear of insignificance. And, um, and, and leaders that are working with millennials, would, would I, I, I really urge them to think about that through the lens of, well, gosh, if they have this fear of insignificance, you know, how can I meet that? Or what does that mean? Let's talk about it and open up that dialogue. In fact, you have uh, you, there are four sections in the book, and one of them is uh, titled Signature Sauce, Uncovering Where Your Passion, Purpose, and Calling Collide, in which you encourage them not just to look at the superficial aspects of, of life, but to go deeper and to uh, evaluate and examine where their hearts really would guide them if they had the luxury of doing what means most. Yeah, and, and I, I think it's a healthy dynamic yes. to ask, ask the questions now. You know, cause, and I think some of us have maybe even seen our parents who worked a job and provided, you know, and they did a great job and they were successful. But then, you know, we have the term the midlife crisis, uh, which the quarter life crisis obviously comes from that term, the midlife crisis, which, you know, then you, you're 50, 55, 60, you get laid off, or maybe you're doing great at your job, but then you realize, wow, this is, this is not what I want to do with my life. You know, I, I actually never asked that question on the onset. I just did this job because it was there and I've been promoted and I just kept doing it. But, uh, and so I, I, I like that millennials are asking the questions at the onset and, and I like the metaphor of signature sauce. And I came up with that to try to break it down a little bit and, and to have that image of a master chef in the kitchen, putting ingredients together to try to create this unique flavor. And, uh, and it's going to take a lot of time again, and there's going to be a lot of failed experiments. There's going to be some sauces that are burnt on the bottom of the pan that you don't want to serve anybody, but, but you're in that process of finding your unique flavor through your story and your values and your strengths and your skill set, And you're coming up with that flavor that hopefully the, you know, I think the world really needs. And I think we need more people, you know, offering their signature sauce to the world. Well, the book is 101 Questions You Need to Ask in Your 20s. And in addition to the book, you have other um, web resources available as well. Tell us about the, the website for All Grown Up and Signature Sauce. Yeah, I have the website. I've uh, run All Grown Up for about seven years now. Uh, I actually launched it out of my master's program as I was doing a lot of research about the theory of emerging adulthood and the struggles that millennials were going through so it's been a great platform to connect with people. Um, like you said, all over the world, I'm always amazed at who's reading the site. And again, all grown, G-R-O-A-N, uh, like you're in pain. And, and people can download free chapters from all three of my books for free off All Grown Up. And then my website, SignatureSauce.com, is, a, is an online program that I take people through uh, when they're, um, to, to help them wrestle with these questions as they're going through change or transition and looking to be more strategic in their career choices. And actually, if, if somebody buys the 101 questions you ask in your 20s book, um, they actually are given the Signature Sauce course for free. And there's a bookmark in there. It's kind of this special fun promo for the first people that buy um, one of the first copies. And it's still going on right now. So they can get this Signature Sauce course for free as well as when they buy the book. Oh, excellent. Again, 101 questions you need to ask in your 20s and, let's be honest, your 30s. Uh, the book is published by 
Moody. Thank you so much for talking with us. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for these amazing questions. You you are the uh, the, the queen at, at asking really good questions. So <laughs> well, I should have thanks. been interviewing you for this book. <laughs> hey, thanks so much. Have a great night. Bye-bye. All right, you as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Again, Paul Angony, author of 101 Questions You Need to Ask in Your 20s. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. And isn't it a beautiful day after this weekend I was beginning to wonder, now, is it June or is it January? I was a little confused, but here we are back in the sunshine. And my understanding is we're going to see some very hot days beginning uh, next week. So be prepared, ladies and gentlemen. Well, so far, more than 119 Oregonians have signed uh, the petition to end state funding of abortion here in the state of Oregon. That's taxpayer-funded abortion. And if you have a petition that needs to be completed... Don't get it lost or stolen. Don't forget about it. Make sure you uh, you return it. The final deadline for that is June the 30th. All signed petitions have to be in the mail by June the 30th. The team that's been working on this is going to need several days to process and then pre-verify all of the signatures prior to delivering them to the elections office on July the 6th. So don't be misled into believing that you have until July the 6th. You actually have until June the 30th. Be aware that if you mail a signature... After June the 30th, uh, it's probably not going to be counted. And yes, signatures are still needed. So far, uh, 117,578 valid signatures um, uh, are required to qualify for the 2018 ballot. Um, they actually have, uh, they need about 15 to 20 percent more than the minimum requirement because chances are uh, a number of them are going to be tossed out for various reasons. The goal is to turn into uh, turn in at least 150,000 signatures to account for unregistered voters, duplicates, other mistakes that will cause signatures to be disqualified. And they don't look at every single signature. They do a sampling. And so if you happen to pull a sample that has has a significant amount that have to be tossed, then uh, chances are you're not going to make it onto the ballot. So uh, make sure you do five things. You need to sign the petition. If you can't remember if you've signed petition number one, you can actually go online and uh, check that out. You need to fill a page with signatures from your friends and family, and that's uh, preferred. However, if you only have a couple of them, do still return them. Make a financial contribution if you uh, if you can. Pray for this effort and tell others about the petition drive as well. I've been heartened to see that Oregon Family Council, Oregon Right to Life have all uh, done mailings in support of this effort, encouraging their uh, donors and supporters uh, to not only fill out, they've mailed um, petitions, but to, to fill them out, to circulate and then send them back, because this will be only the second statewide effort in many decades. I think I've mentioned here that I started out in pro-life work on this effort uh, back in the, um, the 80s. And so we're hoping that this time around it will be successful. Again, the deadline for mailing your ballots back to Oregon Life United is June the 30th. They need a few days to make sure that the signatures they do have, to the best is the, to, of their ability, uh, are in fact valid. And then they'll be sent to the Secretary of State. And the process begins to determine whether or not um, by a, a sampling of them there are sufficient numbers to place this question on the ballot. And, and uh, so far, there are uh, more than 119,000 Oregonians who have signed that petition. So kudos to those who are involved in that effort. And just want to remind you that the uh, clock is ticking. 
Now, taking a look at the remainder of this week on Tuesday, we're going to talk with Glenn Damon, who is the author of The Forgotten Church, Why Rural Ministry Matters for Every Church in America. And of course, the scriptures are very clear that we are connected to one another. So whether or not you attend a very large, what we call mega church in a metropolitan area, or you attend a very small church in a city or town in the uh, in the area, which is the predominant uh, uh, predominance of churches, or you are in a rural area and you attend a very small church. Um, it is, according to this author, a forgotten church that is uh, that matters rather to every church in America. So we're going to talk about that and be reminded of the various shapes and sizes that the body of Christ comes in in the local congregation and how we need one another. And then on Wednesday, we are looking forward to our time with the Union Gospel Mission with their uh, Radiothon for the summer of 2018. And while many of us, when we think about uh, homelessness during the summer months, we might mistakenly believe that, well, life would be much simpler, much easier during this season by virtue of the weather. Well, that, as you have uh, probably heard in previous summer radiothons or for the first time this time around is not the case. Uh, In fact, there are unique challenges to those who live on the streets during this season that aren't present during the winter months. And so we're going to talk a bit about that. And as we've seen the the numbers um, uh, grow, uh, it's also an opportunity to be reminded that the Union Gospel Mission doesn't simply provide uh, food and shelter. They're also providing a way out of off of the streets of our community as well. So we're going to spend some time talking about Union Gospel Mission and its work this summer. And I like their uh, their search and rescue ministry that doesn't just expect those in the downtown area to make their way to the Union Gospel Mission facility, but they're actually going out to areas we know that communities of uh, homeless people live in our uh, our area as well. We're going to hear some pretty amazing stories. For example, uh, they discovered on one of their search and rescue missions a woman who was seven months pregnant living uh, out in a tent in an area where services were simply not available. They helped to connect her with the services that she needs and will need when that baby finally comes. So it's a, a pretty um, hopeful story that Union Gospel Mission uh, is going to share with us, as well as those who still languish on the streets of Portland uh, and need help. So that's coming up on Wednesday. And as I mentioned last week, I've been invited for the second year in a row to MC the Restored Hope Network uh, conference. These are men and women who, by virtue of their faith and a commitment to live a moral and pure life, as uh, described in Scripture, uh, pressing in in their relationship with Christ, have walked away from a lifestyle that is inconsistent with what the Scriptures teach. And this is one of the conferences I so enjoy because these are men and women who have had encounters with Christ that are truly remarkable. We're not talking necessarily about a miraculous uh, change that uh, occurred immediately, but um, through some uh, pretty impressive ministries that walk men and women um, through the scriptures, we've seen some transformations that are uh, amazing. One of the things I appreciate about the Restored Hope Network, uh, an ex-gay ministry, is that the worship time is really remarkable. As uh, you may know, my husband and I are worship leaders, and we have done that t- together for many, many years in a variety of settings. But I have to tell you, this ministry and the uh, the worship time is remarkable because uh, unlike many of us who have forgotten just um, what Christ has done for us, this is a ministry that is painfully aware of the of uh, the fact that through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come, that the grace of God has done remarkable things. So I'm looking forward uh, to that conference. It's on Friday and Saturday this year in Washington, D.C., and so I'll be flying out from Portland, 
uh, airport on Thursday morning and then serving in the capacity of MC on uh, Friday and Saturday in Washington, D.C., and then have Sunday and part of Monday to explore the nation's capital. So I'm looking forward to uh, that. The conference this year is going to be held at one of the largest African-American churches in the Washington, D.C. area that has embraced the ministry wholeheartedly. And so I'm looking forward to acquainting myself with that, myself rather, with that branch of the uh, uh, the family as well. So looking forward to it. In my absence, we're going to share some of the best of the Georgine Rice Show uh, programs as well as Rich Jones is going to come. And do we know what day his his program will air, James? He's going to come in and uh, on Thursday, he's going to uh, provide the programming for the two hours. So if nothing else, make sure you're you're listening in on Thursday because that's going to be a great show. He uh, He's a great communicator. He's a pastor. As you know, the, there's been um, some challenge in his challenge in his family life uh, due to the murder of his daughter a couple of years ago. So I'm not sure what direction he's going to take. He's also uh, an expert on uh, Israel and what's happening there in in terms of scripture and in times um, prophecy and so on. So that's coming up on Thursday. I want to thank James Blend for engineering and producing today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.